AutoCode, the Australian Computer Museum Society podcast. Season 1, Episode 8. I'm Riley Tipton Perry. We have a treat for you today. It's a chat with David L. Jones from EEV Blog, the world's largest and most popular YouTube engineering channel. We discuss our mutual love of electronics and computers, especially those of the vintage kind. Before that, a few announcements. First off, our GoFundMe is getting closer to its goal. Please give if you can at gofundme.com slash f slash help hyphen build hyphen and hyphen Australian hyphen computer hyphen museum. Also, our former president and current patron, Jennifer Seabury, has won the Piercy Medal. Jennifer is Australia's mother of cryptography and a wonderful person. On top of that, Owen Hill, the creator of the Microbee, has been inducted into the Piercy Hall of Fame. I love that guy. For more information, I suggest you go to acms.org.au and click on the link for the December newsletter, where our president, Graham, goes into more detail. Here's a question. What was the first laptop? I'm not talking lugables like the Osborne, but something with a battery. Our mystery object is this device, an Australian invention. It has two names. Either name will do, but knowing both gives you extra points. Well, I'm ready. Let's do this interview. Well, hi, Dave Jones. Hey, <laughs> thanks for inviting me on. I, sorry, I'm so used to uh, the intro of my um, the amp hour radio show, or like a more elaborate intro. I didn't know you just, hi, Dave Jones. <laughs> <laughs> just straight in there. Straight yeah. in there. Yep. I like it. All right. It's good. As, as you know, at the ACMS, we're fairly informal. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I gathered that when I first turned up. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I've got a series of uh, canned questions for you here. So I'll start with the first one. What was your first computer and what did you use it for? Uh, Well, see, we were dirt poor. Like, um, so I couldn't, I I had to lust after these computers um, uh, or I had to, you know, use one at the local library or uh, wherever I could, you know, get my hands on one. Um, So, but my first one was actually a um, grown an MS-DOS machine, Tandy 1000, which I've done um, a video or two on back in the day. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that was the Tandy 1000, but that, uh, yeah, I don't know how my parents afforded that at all because we were dirt poor. I think it was because it was like a run. By the time I got it, I think it was 87 maybe. So, yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I didn't have a computer until like, yeah, more towards the end of the 1980s. Unfortunately. Well, at least it was a Tandy. Oh, it was a Tandy. Exactly. Uh, Tandy 1000. I love that machine. It was great because I, the uh, first thing I bought for it was the service manual, you know, where back yeah. when you could buy service manuals, came in the big ring binder, had all the schematics, it even had the data sheets and it had, had everything. It had the ROM listing and uh, it's just fantastic. Did you end up pulling it apart? Uh, more than that, I like ended up cutting out the chassis and uh, actually running it without the case on it because I had so many mods to it. One of the videos I've done on my channel is where I designed a turbo board uh, yeah. for the Tandy 1000. I replaced the 80, eventually replaced, replaced the 8088 uh, processor with the V20, of course, which was the thing to do back then. The yep. V20 was the plug-in you know, replacement, but I designed a turbo plug-in turbo board for it and I did a color uh, monochrome switch modification. So I drilled holes in the front panel and put a color mono switch and there was another mods like a volume control on the front as well. So I had so many mods on it, I just ran it without the case. So I had just had the bare metal um, <laughs> case. That with, is cool. With the, yeah, that is cool. it was just, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, because like I, I don't think I could bring myself to drill holes in the plastic case, you know. Yeah. So it was like, oh, I'll just drill holes in the metal chassis and I just – yeah, mounted the pot and the switches and stuff on there and turbo switches and whatnot. Okay, so you you didn't get the computer until 87, but you started hobby electronics when you were really young. Oh, yes, absolutely. Had an article published in ETI 
I'm not sure which one was first, ETI or EA, but uh, yeah, it was both. Yeah, I started out with uh, doing like little projects for the, uh, like every month I would have like a uh, submit your own project, uh, like a, I can't can't remember the name of the column now. Jeez, I've got a mental blank. It was uh, like a, you know, like a circuit ideas kind of, yeah, you know, yeah. thing. And, uh, you know, you got paid like 20 bucks or something, you know, <laughs> if you send in your circuit idea. So you'd send in your circuit with, you know, a, like a, a couple of, like a one column text to a couple of column text description or whatever of how it works and stuff like that. So that was my first one. But my first construction, major construction project, that was actually not until... I finished that in like 1990, but it wasn't published until like 93, I think it was. Okay. So that was in EA. Yeah. So, yeah. And then after that, more uh, more like full uh, construction projects and stuff like that. So, and uh, one of my, uh, I wrote an engineering calculator program back in the day, and that was actually reviewed in the magazine. That was around oh, probably 1990 right. or something like that. Uh, so, Yeah. Hobby Electronics, because that that was the outlet back then. I mean, there was yeah. no other way to pub, you know, to make it to publish things. That was it. So I'm assuming you know the editions of of these publications. That- oh god, not the early circuit and design ideas one. The the my digital storage oscilloscope adapter was oh, March '93, perhaps. Yeah, the other ones I don't actually recall the ones earlier than that. They would like circuit and design ideas just spread throughout various issues. No idea, unfortunately. <laughs> it's too long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah. Well, we've probably got all editions of EA and uh, ETI, so um, I'm sure we could hunt them down. Oh, I've, I've got every edition of EA. I've got every edition of EA. Oh, really? back, okay. oh yeah, going back to 60... 1961, I think. Oh, great. Yeah, okay. yeah, i got an entire collection. Of course, I, I didn't start buying it myself until like, you know, sometime in the 80s, um, mid-80s, early 80s, mid-80s, something early 80s, something like that. But then I bought yeah. a collection after that. Somebody was getting rid of their entire collection. So I got all the back issues. So all going back. I don't think I have much of an ETI collection anymore, but I only got one or two things published in there anyway, small uh, circuit design ideas and stuff but it's still great to get hold of those articles and have a look at them now oh yeah like uh, the bigger construction uh projects yeah i've i've got uh like multiple copies of those those editions you know um back you know if my project was featured on the front page or something like that you know you get multiple copies of it so yep because that was a big deal back then yeah yeah definitely perhaps we can uh find them and list them on our site at some stage it's uh it's a big achievement. Yeah, I've probably got them listed on my website somewhere, or some of them anyway. Oh, yeah, if we yeah. could get a link, that'd be great. Yep, no worries. Uh, so you started studying engineering at 15. Can you tell us more about this? Oh, yes. Uh, well, well, I was always a year ahead at school because, I, you know, up until – I don't think it's the same these days, but up until then you could go if you were born before end of June – or something, or end of July, you could actually go to school a year early. So I was like, I was always a year earlier than everyone else. And back, and when I finished uh, year ten um, at school, uh, our overseas audience may not know what we're talking about, so I can't give you a US equivalent uh, of what that is. So the decision was like to go on and spend another two years at high school, which I absolutely hated. Absolutely yeah. hated high school. Couldn't wait to get out of there, and for various reasons. And uh, so it was either go and spend another two years there learning stuff I had no interest in, or go study engineering, which you, which you could do at uh, TAFE at the time at that age. So I went bugger it. I'm going to go to electrical engineering. <laughs> you betcha. Great idea. I'm going to do idea. it. So yep. yeah. And uh, back then it was a um, it was a three year. Uh, Thing, but I actually did uh, two uh, courses back then. So after so after two years, I was actually qualified. So by the by the time I would have finished my HSC, I was already qualified, and I got my first job at uh, in the industry at seventeen. Oh, really? So Amazing. yeah, 
yeah so yeah that was um so really started young so and then i kept uh studying after that and yeah but that's that's how it worked out i just went oh bugger this i'm gonna start learning engineering as soon as possible so yeah i started as soon as i was able i don't think you can do that these days i don't think you can actually do it you can't go to tafe from straight from year 10 and, and do uh, engineering. You, you might be able to you might be yeah actually yes i'm pretty sure you can actually but uh, depends whether or not you could do it at fifteen or not. I'm not sure, but anyway, yeah. So that, that that was a complete no-brainer back then. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of people I've met that are right into computers and electronics, uh, they kind of, you know, they could have done well at school, but they didn't because they were focusing far too much on yeah. education. <laughs> yeah, they they just wanted to ignore everything else. It didn't yeah. matter. Uh, yeah, it was all about the tech. Yeah, I see. I, I've been doing electronics, yeah, since I was like, you know, seven or something like that. And it's all I ever wanted to do. So, uh, like, you know, <laughs> the choice was obvious that the first opportunity I got to go formally uh, study it, because we got nothing. I mean, you learn electronics in high school now, but back then we didn't. I, I can actually remember there was a, uh, it was uh, Electronics Australia, I think. I think it was Electronics yep. Australia. They had a, uh, design contest, right? A school's design contest, right? And so you could enter a design. I was going to uh, enter like a um, oscilloscope, a lead oscilloscope uh, project, right? And I can remember at the time I went to my um, science teacher at high school and I said, hey, because you had to have your support of the school to enter, right? You, the school had to sponsor you or whatever. And I yeah. uh, went to my science teacher and said, hey, I want to, you know, enter a project in this electronics magazine thing. And they went, what the hell is this? We don't know anything about electronics. Go away, kid. It's like, <laughs> oh, gee, thanks for the letdown. And, uh, yeah, so I didn't <laughs> – I wasn't able to enter that. I was really pissed off. So, yep. Interestingly, though, I did years later meet the guy who won that contest. And I and I actually remembered his name, <laughs> and I remembered because he did the same project I was going to do. It was almost identical. It was a lead oscilloscope. Uh, right, George, right. that's his name is. And anyway, I met him later. So that was <laughs> that was rather interesting, well, fortuitous. Yes. So, are you still working as an electronics design engineer as a day job? No, I've uh, YouTube's been my full time stick for ten years now. Yeah, you're, you're uh, kicking ass on YouTube, yeah. Yeah, it was like I was one of the first in the country to become a full-time YouTuber. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, right. yeah, because okay. back, uh, back when I started, it was like nobody was doing it full-time. There was maybe like one or two in the country that were maybe eking out some sort of living doing it. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't back then. It was uh, the only reason I was able to do it is because I got sponsors on my uh, forum that ah, uh, okay. allowed me to, yeah do it full time it still doesn't really bring in enough money you know if i just bought the got the money from uh the youtube advertising revenue probably still yeah. you know, so be enough to make the sponsors are essential right. yeah. Uh, yeah well not not sponsors advertisers on the website i don't i've never advertisers taken on the website yeah. gotcha okay yep. yeah well i was going to ask you about that that was one of my last questions but i might as well ask you now you're obviously a very successful youtuber I'm thinking this is due to the high quality and large amount of content you've produced. So uh, very high quality, very high frequency. Other than that, how can, say, uh, an organisation like the ACMS perhaps get a few right. more hits? Yeah, this is, this is where it's hard. Um, it's not necessarily the high quality. I mean, even my videos today aren't. A patch on some of the others, um, even in the engineering space now, right? There's, you know, a dozen engineering channels that produce better quality content than mine in terms of production values and, you know, editing and, and all that sort of jazz, right? Mine is still sort of slapped together. You know, I just uh, turn on the camera, like I don't write scripts, I just turn on the camera and start yapping away and then I edit it and upload it and, you know, that's kind of do some basic editing and that's about it. Um, not really high high production values and certainly when i started <laughs> the, the production values were, were were zero not even uh, the small amount i do now and so it's not necessarily the quality of the content it's just uh the sheer persistence of it's taken me 
you know, 12, I've been doing it for 12 years. It's taken me 12 years to build up 750,000 subscribers, right? Whereas other channels get that many subscribers in a year now or six months or something like that. Right, if okay. They, you know, stamina. If they, stamina. Yeah, yeah, stamina and 2,000 videos or something that I've made over that time. And it's just, yeah, the sheer persistence of, and it helped me in the first, but there are now several channels that are in the engineering space that are bigger than mine, but they've got more sort of focused content, whereas mine is very, has always been very broad uh, content. You know, I, I like to say like I do a dozen or two dozen different types of content. So every time I upload a video, you never know what it's going to be. It could be a vintage computer, tear down it could be a tutorial it could be an interview it could be you know anything so yeah it's just sheer persistence um how you do it these days how, how to get successful you really just have to don't try and follow the clicks don't try and follow any trends or anything like that just produce content that you're enthusiastic about and you'll find an audience gotcha that is the best way to do it unfortunately something like the com- com- vintage computer uh, museums that that's by its very nature is limited audience although you know it's a very specific niche audience although there are several vintage computer channels that are doing really well for themselves you know they've got like oh you know half a million subs a million some even maybe up to a million i'm not sure but yeah so they do pretty well but it's not never going to appeal to you know joe average yeah on yeah. the street, so you'll never get to you know ten million subs, and you won't do it. You almost certainly won't go viral and things like that. Making you know vintage computer content, for example, and unfortunately, it's just the nature of that's why I like I've never really gone viral with my content because it just doesn't. It appeals to a, a fairly niche audience. So yeah, but uh, just if you want to be successful, just keep making content that you enjoy, and the subscribers will come. So. Yep. Yeah. Well, that, I mean that that's that's what I meant by quality content. I mean I meant stuff that was cool. Oh, not right. Necessarily okay. Production right. value. Uh, production yeah. value as well. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, audiences are fickle too. You know, yep. if, if yep. you don't give them what you want every time, because as I said, mine's a broad content appeal channel. I make so many different types of videos. I might have seven hundred and fifty thousand subscribers, but if I upload a video, I might only get you know forty to fifty thousand views because it that video, that type of video I just did, did, does not appeal to everyone who subscribed to my channel. So you'll get a higher subscriber to view ratio if you keep a more focused content. Like if you do vintage computers and that's all you do every time, every upload, then of course you're going to get a higher subscriber to view ratio, which is definitely beneficial, but it uh, limits to what type of stuff you could do. I, I just enjoy doing a wide mix of content, but I pay a price for that. Yeah, well, you've got lots of different uh, sort of disparate demographics that, uh, yeah, will watch a particular clip and not others, right? Yeah, I see what you mean there. Yep. Uh, Australian-specific retro computing is a very, <laughs> very, very niche audience. <laughs> That's, sure. Yeah, you're getting niche, the niche of the niches there. Um, <laughs> Perhaps yeah. too niche. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, my audience is only 10% from Australia, so you oh, know, okay. it, it, it's a relatively small percentage. Um, yeah, so if I did only Australian content, you know, or something specific to Australia, then it's like, yeah my view numbers drop. <laughs> so like if I was to interview Jim Rowe, for example, like I've interviewed Colin Mitchell from Talking Electronics who designed the Tech 1A computer, um, yeah. uh, the uh, kit computer back in the day. And, you know, I, I don't get many views for those, but I enjoy doing them because, you know, they're personally, um, you know, personally exciting for me, but I can't expect everyone else to, you know, they, they've never heard of Jim Rowe. They've never heard of Colin Mitchell, you know. Um, I could interview Leo Simpson or I could interview, you know, someone else, but they've never heard of them. I could interview Dick Smith. No one outside of Australia has ever heard of Dick Smith. They just don't care. So, you know, yeah, unfortunately. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Definitely, if you get a chance, yeah, definitely make, make the content and they'll come. So I'll move on to uh, I'll move on to one of Joe's questions here, Joe from the ACMS. Uh, yep. Uh, 
Can you tell us about your work on FPGAs and how it relates to the current trend of retro computing? Right. I used to work at um, Altium. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They're a PCB design company and um, they, they, they make a PCB design tool. And uh, their focus about 10 or 15 years ago now, they switched. They went, FPGA is the future. Everyone's going, every product is going to have an FPGA in it and you won't need all these custom chips anymore. You'll just, FPGAs will do everything. You know, so they bet the whole company on that. So they hired a hardware team that, that included me to work on FPGA design and development boards and things like that. So that's what I was doing at Altium. I worked there for four years uh, designing FPGA development uh, boards. And I've, I've uh, designed in the odd FPGA into various products. I've worked at it, uh, other design companies and things like that. So how it relates to vintage computers, well, that's obvious because vintage computers are you know, predominantly, if you look maybe like for like mid-80s perhaps, uh, you know, 85 or, or lower, some people say, well, 70s, they're all like a large amount of TTL logic, right? Yeah. Large amount of uh, you know, just discrete logic components, hundreds of chips, Right, hey, and this is just support chips. This is not, you know, when we're talking about the uh, like a a TTL computer, like well, I'm sure we'll get onto the eDuck eight and things like that. But uh, yeah, just the support chips alone re- might might require a hundred. Uh, you know, if you open up the original IBM PC, go and have a look at how many chips are just regular seven four series latches. You know, data bus latches and drivers and you know uh, other things. It's just it's just phenomenal. And, of course, because they're all digital, you can whack those in a single FPGA. And, of course, computers yeah. went on to build them into, uh, first of all, uh, Gatorade uh, chips. So, you know, your, your 16 uh, G8 Gatorade type chips, which had a, like a small amount of logic, but you could put, you know, 20 flip-flops in there and you could put, you know, a bunch of other gates. So you could compress, you know, 20 chips down to one or something like that. And then they got onto uh, chipsets, which everyone knows these days, you know, the various, you know, whatever you call them, Sandy Bridge chipsets or whatever they're called uh, these days. That's basically a a similar thing, except they design those custom because they're going to be cheaper, they're going to be lower power, they're going to be faster and more optimised. But you can do all those things inside a single FPGA, and that's the beauty of them. So, and with all the processors all the old school processors, almost, I think almost every one of the vintage computer processors has been completely re-engineered as a soft core, which then you can just drop into an FPGA. So you can basically have an FPGA single chip computer that not only, that doesn't just simulate a Commodore 64 or a, you know, an Apple one or whatever. It will actually be a hardware emulation of it. Yeah, It'll be a yeah, true yeah. hardware emulation, not just a, a software simulation. So that, that's the natural. That's why FPGAs, everyone, you know, everyone who designs a vintage computer now uses an FPGA, of course, unless you really want to go old school and, nah, it's got to be TTL. You know, it's got to be like this yeah. 4 series logic. <laughs> and then, well, okay, great. Have fun with that. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, On to vintage teardowns. Uh, that you're, the teardowns are amazing. We've, I've got a few teardowns to ask you about. Yep. I'll, I'll just list a few and maybe you could tell us a few interesting things about those specific ones. We've got the Lisa Trash 80 Model 1 Level 2, the Osborne yep. and the Acon Archimedes A3000. Yep. The Apple, uh, I always thought it was called the Apple Liza. <laughs> I, I just didn't, I, I don't know, but back in the day, I never, like, it never occurred to me that it was his daughter's name, like Lisa, you know, Apple Lisa. I always called it, you know, Apple Liza. That's the problem with uh, pronunciation of things back in the day. We didn't have YouTube like we did these days, so you never heard people, unless you, you know, worked in the industry or you heard other people talk about it, you'd never, you know, heard people say the word. So I just thought it was Liza. So anyway. (laughs) The Apple Lisa. Yeah, sorry. I remember reading, thinking it was a Rendez Vows with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. For many years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and yeah. I thought our diodes were diodes. 
So as I was, I swear I called them diodes until I was about 13 or 14 years old. Right. Like, you know, it's like, because I, I didn't know it. When I was growing up, I didn't know anyone who was into electronics. There was no YouTube. There were no videos to watch, right? So I didn't have any friends who were into electronics. So I had nobody to talk to. So I was just reading the magazines and, well, you know, okay, sounds like diode. So diode it is. Well, that's what's amazing to me because um, I, I was kind of more into programming than, than electronics in the early 80s. But yep. it was a real um, mentor-protege type relationship. Right. Where if you if you didn't know, you just didn't know, and uh, <laughs> you'd have to read you'd have to read a hundred books uh, if you didn't have someone to tell you how to do it. Exactly. With assembler and, and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, re- that that's that's an amazing achievement that you managed to do all that by yourself. Excellent. Anyway, Apple Lisa. Yep. Apple Lisa. Yeah, this is uh, one of the um, interesting things about the Apple uh, Lisa is that. It had a, um, it's like, it's physically quite a large unit. And when you open it up, the boards are like there's a full size board at the back and it's got these plug in card chassis things. And it's, um, and one of the boards is like quite sparsely populated, double sided board, actually. And I, you know, I thought, oh, geez, they haven't really tried the PCB layout designer hasn't really tried hard to fit all this into a smaller package, you know. It was kind of like, oh, it, it, you know, they didn't really put thought into making it smaller in any way. It was like, well, let's just make it as big as we need to make it kind of thing. And it's, you know, yeah. all these large plug-in boards, and I'm sure they could have got it a bit, you know, more compact, things like that. So it, it's, I don't know what, what would have come first, like the boards, and then they figured out how to fit the boards into the case they wanted or whether or not, you know, they sketched out the case first and then, you know, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's just there's physically a lot of stuff in there. Well, was the Lisa was the Lisa you looked out at uh, the one with the Twiggy drives or, or the one after that? <laughs> oh, I couldn't tell. It was the Lisa 2, I think. Okay. Is Lisa it? I, I think there's two of them, isn't there? I think it Well, the Twiggy drives were the on the original Lisa. I think they removed them fairly quickly because they were unreliable. Right. I, I don't know the difference between the Twiggy, twiggy drive. Do, do they physically look different or? Yeah, the, the, yeah they do. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I mean, this is an audio medium, so it's uh, yeah. you know, I can't really describe it. But, uh, yeah, they are different. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think mine looked like a standard three-and-a-half-inch floppy. I don't uh Yeah, so I'm not sure. Sorry. But, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was, yeah, it's just like a really big unit. The power supply in it's big and bulky. And I, I know it's got a reasonable size, uh, you know, CRT in it. But, yeah. geez, you know, it's like, yeah. Back then, it was not uh, what in in the hardware business can we call uh, build to envelope design. You know, right. it's like it's like as elegant. in yeah, it's 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 not elegant. Uh, and like I pulled up one of the uh, pulled out one of the boards and held up the light and I went, yeah, that's double sided. And look at you know because it takes more routing room on the PCB to route chips on a double sided board than it does to mount it on a do it on a four layer board. But gotcha. uh, yep. but they did some, but the, uh, some other boards in there are four layers as well. But they were obviously cutting costs on some of the boards um, by going to two layer. Now there's you know not much cost difference, but back then it would have been a big deal. Yeah, save cost. So yeah, but you know back then they were just big and bulky. <laughs> it's, it's quite surprising when you open these things. So the the model one level two, the Trash eighty, that was yep. my first machine. Oh, oh wow. Interested to know what your uh, what your thoughts on that are after a teardown. <laughs> oh, the poor trash eight. I'm I'm so glad that you call it trash eighty two. I've been taken to task <laughs> over calling it the trash eighty by the trash eighty fanboys. You know how dare you, sacrilege. You know well, it's the trash talk podcast. I think that <laughs> I mean if they say it's okay, then it must be right. <laughs> right. Um, the uh, trash eighty once again very like that was seven. Was that seventy seven? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, model. 
let me just level yeah. one, level two, seventy-seven. Was it was level two in seventy-seven? I'm not quite sure. Well, I don't know. You know, it's like <laughs> once again, I was like, you know, I I didn't own any of these. I just lusted after them, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and got to play with them, you know, at a at a store or something like that. You know, that's that's like the best I could uh, kind of do. So, yeah, there. Uh, once again, that's a actually. I think they did. No, it's got giant ceramic caps on that uh thing it's got you know like as for the bypass caps giant giant disc ceramics and they're just like all over the place but that was a reasonably neat design it was you know single board uh construction and yeah you know it's classic 1977 stuff though once again that was a double-sided board to get the cost down but but there's not much in it really like compared to like an apple lisa or something like that i mean you know, it's chalk and cheese. So, like, in terms of number of chips and boards required. So, back then, you know, you could fit everything on a single board. Have you uh, ripped apart a System 80 to, to contrast it to a Model 1 Level 2? No, I haven't done the System 80 yet. Might have to try and get my hands on one. Yeah, okay. We can, so, we can see what we can do about that. Hmm. Uh, I, I actually just bought one recently, Um it's rather expensive. Sure <laughs> I haven't on eBay for ages for vintage computers. I was in a, you know, like five years ago, I was looking like crazy, you know, trying to find yeah. vintage. I haven't done it for a long time now. It's like I just, oh. <laughs> Prices have gone through the roof. I know. It's just nuts. I'm thinking I should sell my vintage collection now. What's your opinion? I'm thinking that because, like, in, in 20 years' time, like, no one will care about these things anymore. Like the people who actually remember these things will be ancient or dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So un, un, unless you've got something like ultra rare, like an Apple One or something, like I don't, you know, really think that anyone's going to, you know, care about a, you know, an Acorn or something like that. Um, in you know twenty thirty years time, I think I think prices of might be hitting a peak now. What's your? You, you could you could be correct. Yeah. You yeah. Could be right. Mm. I, I, the. What we're trying to do is, um, I had a chat with Peter Thorne, who who I interviewed recently, and um, he, he said something which which should have been really obvious. Uh, he said, "You guys at the ACMS are collecting a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. Why don't you Why don't you focus on Australian gear?" And um, it shouldn't have been an epiphany, but it was an epiphany. Right. Okay. So you guys are, are now focused on Aussie stuff. Yes, yeah, since the new board. So we've got a new we we got a new board in August. Board um, of board of directors. Uh, executive executive board. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so we've we've changed direction uh, a lot more, sort of focused on displays and Australian gear now, and our collections right. policy is changing to um to reflect that. But uh, yeah, we're we're trying, I think, to create a sort of uh, a, a need or a want. For Australian gear, as opposed to just collecting everything. So. Got it. Because there's like how many vintage computer, like vintage computer museums are there around the world? And they've all got you know everyone's got an Apple II, everyone's got a you know a Commodore sixty four, everyone's got a Trash eighty, you know exactly things exactly. like that. So yeah, it's the Aussie stuff. I mean, yeah. How, how yeah. many Aussie made computers are there though? Uh, there's quite a few. I would be surprised, uh, would I? Yeah, it's it, it's quite surprising. Yeah, right. so even the kit computers from Electronics Australia, there's, yep. there's, there's there's tons of those. So I've been trying to buy up as many of them as I can. Right, um, a lot of those would have been tossed. You know, it's like oh, it's sad, be yeah. very hard to get like a mini scamp or a oh, or a, a mini scamp. <laughs> How hard I've looked for a mini scamp. Yeah, <laughs> right. You haven't got one yet. <laughs> No, I haven't got one. I haven't got one. (laughs) Right. No. Uh, We've got the Signetics 2650. We've got the Baby 2650. And uh, Guy from the ACMS is uh, holding on to the uh, the version after that, um, which he might display at the ACMS if I can convince him. Right. Um, I got a Super 80 recently. Yep. The the Nova 80 or something. And, of course, it's Microbeads. Classic. Yeah, ton. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Heaps of micro yeah. There's probably still quite a few of those around. I imagine they wouldn't. No, they'd be go. They're pretty pricey. Yeah, they are pricey. I bought a few of them myself. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They're, mm. they're 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 not cheap. Um, but there are. Yeah. There. There's the. There's a pretty good uh, preservation project 
around right. microbees. Um, yep. You know, it's, it's, a lot of it's happening in Victoria, that stuff. Mm. Uh, as, so well, let's skip uh, the Osborne and the Acon. The teardown I'm most interested in is the Kookaburra. Oh, yes, the um, the Delmont um, Magnum. Delmont Magnum. Delmont yeah. Magnum. Um, yes. Yeah, the guy who actually, uh, one of the designers of that, uh, John Blair, he actually uh, posted comments on my video and uh, emailed me as well. So oh, really? he's actually seen that. So, yeah, if you need to uh, get in contact with him, he's uh, he's uh, actually still around. Done. Well done. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so, so it's on the video. So if I get it here, I've got... Hang on. Uh, the Dalmont Magnum. I didn't put that in the title. It's uh, The title is Australian-Made Vintage Laptop Teardown. There it is. And, yeah, I've pinned his comment, John Blair's comment, to the top. So he went through my video and sort of, you know, fixed a few mistakes and confirmed a few things and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I actually had no idea about this Dalmont Magnum thing. Yeah, I, I yeah. Just, yeah, I had not heard of this thing before I got it. Uh, you know, it just popped up, and uh, yeah, I went, oh, geez, this is cool. And apparently, the kookaburra that I've got is apparently really rare because they re the uh, John says that the kookaburra didn't the kookaburra name didn't last long before they were bought out, and they changed it, they rebadged it. Well, it's actually so. Time Office Computers bought. Dolmont. So they bought right. Dolmont out and then they rebadged it, the Kookaburra. Oh, yeah. okay. Right. Told, no, it's just the other way around. Yep. Yeah. And that, that didn't last long. We actually got a, um, we got gifted a Dolmont Magnum recently. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, it was from a guy who actually worked at Time Office. Right. And uh, he, uh, and after, after talking to him, I realized that I had a, an extremely rare time office machine in my garage oh <laughs> no it was a big day it was a big right day. Yeah. <laughs> but but it was branded time office was it branded time office on right. the back. it was very scratchy so you know i hadn't really looked yep and uh, it, it was just this old weird looking machine but, yeah. <laughs> for, for, for those who don't know what we're talking about this is an australian designed and uh built uh ibm compatible laptop and it looks like Pretty clunky. What has it got? An eighty by twenty screen or something? Eighty by. Uh, they changed. So, oh, yeah, they changed they, did it. They put yeah, a big screen because mine's a small screen. I, yeah, I'm not sure what the the dimensions of the different screens were, but I do right. have. Um, well, we we have at our display in Croydon now, which is still not open. It will be soon. Excellent. I'll have uh, to drop by and check it out. Do a video. Various on. screen sizes of of Delmont. Okay. Magnum. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I've got the narrow screen it isn't very tall so i can't remember how many characters but the interesting part about this is that uh it's an 80186 and the 80186 is actually i oh, i'm gonna say it's fairly rare in ms dos machines there was the tandy 2000 is one i remember that had the 80186 but offhand i can't remember any others right okay can you recall any 80186 IBM compatible machine? Because pretty much everyone jumped from the 8088, 8086 to the 80286. Very few people use the 80186. So yeah, yeah. I, I, offhand, I, I don't know, but perhaps that's something mm -hmm. our, our listeners can yes. uh, email can email in about. Because I think the 80186 was more used in the industrial space rather than the uh, rather than the consumer PC space. Gotcha. So yeah, so that's why it's uh it's it's fairly rare. But uh, that was like a sixteen bit. You know, that's when they jumped to like a true sixteen bit architecture, and yeah. um and it was much more powerful than the eight hundred eighty six. In fact, Bill Gates famously said um at the time when the Tandy two thousand came out, it was the it was he said it was the only machine powerful enough to run Windows, which was then under development. You know, it was like it was the only one that could do it. Because you know it had this with the eight hundred two eighty six hadn't came out yet, so right, okay. yeah, yeah. I, I think that might have been like the DOS version of Windows. Wasn't there a DOS version of it or something? Anyway, I don't know. But yeah, he uh, he famously uh, talked up the Tandy two thousand. That was his uh, his computer of choice at the time because it had the eight hundred one eighty six in it. Rumor rumor has it that the Dolmont Magnum was the first true laptop with a battery. You know, everything else before that was luggable. Oh, luggable, like the uh, Osborne. 
yeah, yeah. So right. I, oh, interesting. Sure really. True, but, okay. But, uh, yeah, I've heard that, but uh, yeah, we will fact check that. Yeah. And it had a super long battery life because one of the interesting things about it, and uh, um, uh, John actually confirms this, I think, in his uh, response to my uh, video, is that uh, basically they to get the Ultra, I think it was 20 hours battery life. Jeez, people would kill for 20 hours these days on their laptops, wouldn't they? I mean, it's, you know, it used uh, four, four or five, I think, D-cells, rechargeable um, D-cells right. in it. And, uh, well, at least, at least mine does. I don't know about the models you've got. But, uh, yeah, it, it, like 20 or 24 hours battery life because they actually shut down the processor because it's a static processor and they use, uh, they don't use, they used um static ram so if you yeah. use static ram you can just stop the clock right yeah. you can just stop the processor clock and your memory's still there and you can just restart it so every time you pressed a key it'd wake up and it'd interrupt the process it'd actually switch on the processor jump back into the operating system process the key and then shut down the processor again every time you pressed a key <laughs> So it was like, I think you had to execute, if you ran a program, you had to execute a command to tell it, please don't shut down the machine, just keep the program running or something like gotcha. that. Okay. So, yeah, it shut it down. It was a really interesting um, aspect of ahead it. Of, ahead of the curve. Yeah. And it had MS-DOS in ROM, in ROM. So this thing booted instantly. Ah, you know, you didn't. Yeah, I don't know about the other Dalmonts, but... Um, yeah, this one because it had plug-in pro and had two slots for programmable cartridges, right? But they were application yeah. programs. But this thing had MS DOS two point one one, I think, in it, and uh, yeah, it was built into ROM. And uh, John says, "Yeah, uh, yes, here we go." I'll quote him. You're right. The ROMs contained MS DOS. We actually had to modify the MS DOS code so that it ran from ROM, which was hard to do. Lots of Gatesian self-modifying code in it. So lots of Bill Gates <laughs> self mod you know, because Bill Gates wasn't exactly the world's most elegant programmer. He was very good, but yeah. you know, he was famous for yeah, um, <laughs> you know, not not making uh, maintainable code or readable well, code. Microsoft or code has been famous for that for many years. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, he yeah, he says he doesn't believe anyone else got MS-DOS to work in a ROM. So okay. that was, yeah, that was quite possibly the only machine in the world that had MS-DOS in ROM. So uh, do you, did that happen at Dalmont or did that happen when they went to time off or so under? That would have been... Dalmont, because my one is branded Dalmont Electronic Systems on right. on the actual PCB. It's my, my mine, is, mine is copyright 1983 Dalmont Electronic oh, Systems okay. right, right on the PCB. So yeah, um, yeah. I was. A, I think they stopped selling them in 85, 86, something like that. Okay. Not, yeah. Not quite sure. I have to yeah, know. a machine like this wouldn't have had more than a two year lifespan in fact if you had a two-year lifespan on a computer back then i think you would do it pretty well you know apart from the apples of the day you know the apples and the commodores of the day which kept selling for quite a long time these more sort of you know niche ones um yeah. yeah yeah didn't last all that long usually so yeah but absolutely fascinating machine yeah australian made laptop and as you said probably one of the world's first battery powered laptops just one more question then, and it's about kids and electronics. How can we – well, what's the current state of hobby electronics and uh, how can we better help kids get into electronics? Well, it's – back when I was a boy, <laughs> when I was a boy, it's like um, that if you were a technically curious kid, that's what you got into. Right. And yep. then and then computers come along and by the mid eighties it was like if you were technically curious, you got into programming. Right. And then I thought hobby electronics by, you know, the mid nineties or something, it was like I thought it was dead. And then we had the whole maker resurgence, right? The whole maker movement started up. And uh and now, of course, there's so many hobby kit uh businesses you know yeah there, there's your art of fruits and your spark funds and all these kids are assembling all these you know flashy lead projects and you know stuff like that so uh, there, there's there's a debate in the electronics industry over whether or not that's true hobby electronics like if you get an arduino or something like that and you program it is that hobby electronics yeah eh, you know it's like the, you could have a you know all day 
uh, debate about that one. But, uh, yeah, like it's – no, it's certainly come back to life through the maker movement um, and that really saved it. So I would say is hobby electronics um, dead? No, <laughs> far from it. You can get more stuff now than you could – back then you know yeah that's right back in the it? day it's yeah. just you know and there's still some electronics magazines around they're pretty much dying though and um, they're, they're really struggling uh to survive and things like that but unfortunately once computers came around the um basically uh there was the contest between if you were technically curious or oh, do you work on computers or do you work on hobby electronics and you know same thing now there's so many gadgets and technologies around that you know, a technically curious kid. What do they want to work on? You know, do they want to build something on a breadboard? Eh. You know, it's it's hard to get them excited when there's so many other. They're being bombarded with so yeah, much other yeah. stuff. I guess you're you right. Know, it's, yeah. just, it's just really difficult. So I've got no magic bullet for that. But um, kids, are, there's so many schools programs now, maker movement schools programs, and you can buy so many kits these days. And uh, things like that. But hobby electronics is, you know, it's it's changed. It's not, you know, a lot of people don't solder anything in it. They don't build things up on breadboard anymore. Yeah. But yeah. they'll, you know, design their own board, <laughs> you know, using uh, KeyCAD or something because they want to plug this custom board into their Arduino or their Raspberry Pi or something like that, which is absolutely amazing. You know, such advanced stuff you could work on these days. And, and the amazing thing is, is the amount of advanced stuff you can do. Like back in the day, we, you know, if you couldn't do it with 7.4 series logic, you couldn't do it, right? Yeah. That was it. And it's just so, it's such a multitude of stuff these days. You can do incredibly advanced um, and design incredibly advanced products in your garage. You know, it's just, it's just absolutely amazing. So hobby electronics, I don't, don't know if we can do anything better than what's current than the maker movement's currently doing. I don't have any uh yeah, magic idea there unfortunately. So Yeah, the it's uh, still going strong. It kind of uh, I mean I was interested in electronics in the mid 80s and then I kind of lost interest in it. But uh, when when PIC microcontrollers became a thing, oh yeah, micro uh, it up. Yeah, it it kind of just gradually sort of linearly grew from that point for me i could just see it coming coming back and getting better and better and better with the better microcontrollers and stuff yeah so i, but, I, I think it's here to stay um yep. maybe not at the level it was in the 70s um, it's, but, it's just different it's just yeah, different it's and different. different in a lot of good ways too as i said you know the amount of stuff you can do these days is absolutely incredible if you've got an idea to do something you know you can do it it's just it doesn't matter how complicated or advanced it is it's just unbelievable um yeah, you know, we've, we've, we've got hobbyists sending satellites up, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, come on, right? Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's it's crazy stuff. We've got, you know, high school kids, you know, sending satellites into space. It's just, yeah, it's it's nuts. There was one thing I wanted to ask you about, though. Have yeah, you, yeah. I've, I've put this on my forum. I've put it on Twitter, and nobody can find, I've only ever found one reference to it. It's, it's an Australian design computer. The yep. Terran T40. The Terran T40. Terran. I'm going to look. T-E-R-R-A-N, T40. And if you Google that, the only thing that comes up is my forum post on it. Gotcha. <laughs> because I have a vivid recollection. I can almost visualize the article in your computer or in APC, one of the computer magazines of, of you know, back in the late, you know, back in the 80s somewhere. Yeah. This they had this uh, column. It wasn't a big. Uh, you know, it was only like a single column of new products, you know, and things coming to the market, things like that. And they they had a focus on this Terran the the Terran T forty computer, and they showed a a photo of it. I'd probably recognise it if I ever saw it. It's a, like a low profile, um, you know, standard box, you know, with your three and a half inch floppy on it or whatever. And uh, anyway, I um yeah, the Terran. They said this was an Australian design computer. Uh, for, I can't remember the exact name of the company, the Terran something or just Terran, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the curious thing, though, is that they uh, boasted that they wrote their own by This was an IBM-compatible machine, right? I, can't, I think it was 286 or something. 
286, but they boasted that they wrote their own bias from scratch because they didn't want to pay royalties to whoever, you know, was the leading bias at the time. So they wrote their own bias from scratch, and I'd love <clears throat> to get info, like I could find one if possible. So but can you spell that again for yeah, me? T-E-R-R-A-N, I believe. That's how it's spelled, Terran. The Terran E40. Yep. That is not on my list, and I have okay. a list of about 100. <laughs> so. Somebody, and I'll, I'll have to send you the link. Somebody on Twitter actually found a link to a document that describes some plug-in card and it mentions the Terran T40 in it. says, this card doesn't work in the Terran T40. And uh, so that's the only reference in all of the interwebs I can find to this Australian-designed IBM-compatible machine. I did find someone on LinkedIn, though, who used to work there apparently. So, oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I might have to send you the data. I don't know if I ever contacted him or not, but uh, it just way down. I spent hours researching, you know, I was just, I needed to find this, damn it. And and that's the best I could do. Um, that's fascinating. Was, yeah, Terran T40. But to design your own, to write your own IBM bias at the time, wow. You know, that, yeah, that just, yeah. I was stunned by that when I read that in the article and I can clearly remember that. That's why it sticks in my mind 30 years later. Um, oh, we, we shall follow this to its conclusion. Excellent. Terran T40 will, uh, will right. be unveiled and uh, we'll, we'll try and get hold of one. Oh, yeah. I, I am there. If, 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 if you get it, I'm there. I, I want to see the unboxing of the Terran T40. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, well, thank, thank you so much for talking to us. Dave. No worries, mate. Always love talking vintage computers and stuff. Yeah. So yeah. So check out check out Dave's blog, and uh, the EEV blog. EEV blog. Yes. And uh, thank you. No I'll worries. Once once the show's up, put it up, and I'll um I'll link to it. Cool. Our mystery object is the Dolmont Magnum, the world's first true laptop. It was first exhibited in September 1983. The machine, initially marketed by Dalmont, was eventually taken over by Time Office Computers, and they renamed it the Kookaburra. Finally, a correction. Alan Lawton is no longer with MSPP, but now works directly with Ewan Wordsworth at microbtechnology.com.au in both the forum and file repository. He's added about 1,600 files in the last 12 months or so. Prolific. Okay, as always, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk soon. If you like this podcast, or if you want to support the preservation of Australian computing history, donate monthly and make a difference by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash ACMS. We also accept one-off donations. Please go to acms.org.au and click donate now. This has been... Oh, okay.